0: back to the Podcasts. Chris and Chris are with me.
1: Hello, hey, everyone.
0: And we are here to do uh, the Mel Brooks, David Br- David David, Brinch, David Lynch movie, uh, Elephant Man. I almost a head I mean, like a Razorhead again.
2: We could talk about a racer head again if you really want to. Uh,
0: it's a little too early for me to remember what happened <laughs> in a razorhead. head. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're here to talk about Elephant Man based on uh, the real life Elephant Man. And a uh, couple of things that I definitely am not currently looking up.
2: You mean the two books that it's based off of?
0: Yeah, based on The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences by Sir Frederick Treves, the real life uh, Anthony Hopkins character, and uh, in part by The Elephant Man, a Study in Human Dignity by Ashley Montague. Montague? Seems like Montague, like the Shakespeare like people. Uh, but Chris, leak us in.
2: All right. Well, the film The Elephant Man starts off with a surreal dream sequence that tells the myth story of how the Elephant Man came to be born. A woman is in the African jungle area somewhere. It's not specified. And she is attacked by a troop of elephants while she's pregnant, and that supposedly created the... The birth of the deformed John Merrick, who is henceforth termed the Elephant Man. Uh, this sequence is very nightmarish and dreamlike, very surreal, very, very David Lynch. I'm sure people that were going into the movie theater to see the prestige drama that follows were not prepared for those first two or three minutes. Um, but after that, we key, we key in on Anthony Hopkins. He is at a carnival and he comes across the freak show he goes in and the cops are in the process of shutting down the freak show over the exhibit of the quote terrible elephant man anthony hopkins curiosity cannot be abated so he goes and he follows he he finds the elephant man and pays for a private showing and subsequently takes him to the hospital so that he can be studied for anatomy purposes uh Medical curiosity, all of the things that exploitative doctors would definitely bring someone like John Merrick into a hospital for. Uh, over the course of the movie, he gains up permanent residency at the hospital, and what follows is really a study in a study in human dignity, as one of the two books uh, is titled it's an empathetic film about how we treat other people and what constitutes them being a human being worthy of basic human respect and dignity. Um, one of David Lynch's most empathetic films, um, John Hurt delivers a tremendous performance as John Merrick, who is covered in so much makeup. You cannot tell that it's John Hurt. Um, and the makeup is really, truly extraordinary. Um, yeah, I think that's all I'll say for the, the opening salvo.
0: Yeah, I uh, was looking for John Hurt for the longest time until I just looked it up, and then I saw that he was playing the Elephant Man himself. And I was like, oh, that's why I can't recognize anybody that looks like John Hurt in this movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, this yeah, is the with... uh, same thing with John Hurt. I was like, well, who is he in this movie? Oh, no, he must be the guy in all the makeup that I can't recognize.
2: <laughs> all the makeup. Yeah, this, this film was nominated for something like nine or ten academy awards it didn't win a single one because that year was completely fucked um Uh most of the awards went to robert redford's ordinary people which nobody remembers um and then the the other big contender that year was martin scorsese's raging bull which everybody remembers so (laughs) poor david lynch and the elephant man uh came out during a fucked year where one of scorsese's absolute masterpieces came out and then another movie that nobody cares about or remembers just won all the awards
1: i was reading that the uh they basically had to create a best makeup category because everybody was so outraged that elephant man won nothing despite the makeup work in that movie
2: <laughs> I'd, bu- I'd buy it i'll buy that for a dollar
0: yeah that's right reg right, as well uh, um it was nominated for eight academy awards uh tying raging bowl for the nominations uh, best actor i mean best picture and then best actor um Best art direction, sec direction Best costume design, best director Best film editing, best music score And best writing screenplay Based on material from another medium Well, they have changed these titles since then Um <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised it didn't at least one Best costume design uh, it, it, I mean, All the
2: costume design stuff The the period piece stuff That it, it should have definitely won for Went to Roman Polanski's test Which was another big period
0: piece Ugh roman polanski that guy sucks
2: <laughs> but yeah absolute absolute shame poor the elephant man at the oscars yep. so um i guess we'll start off with uh what did we what did we like about the film unless anyone has anything to add to the basic setup and description
1: um i would only add that i think this movie is a big critique on basically people's uh curiosity it's a little heavy-handed with it i think when Shreves is going around kind of panicking like oh man i've turned him into a circus attraction again um because all now these rich london nobility aristocrats are kind of paying him visits um more for i guess the social what is perceived as the social status of you know you know meeting this this deformed elephant man as opposed to the handful of people who actually are truly like you know concerned with him and and think of him as a person and not an attraction and it's pretty obvious i think in the film who those people are Mm -hmm. and they are few and far between really like two or three or three or four sorry people throughout the whole movie that he interacts with i think overall come across as thinking of him as a person first um and wanting him to really you know experience a a happy life because he's clearly a good happy or a good kind-hearted person yeah
2: It's it's such I think the Elephant Man is such one of the most exquisitely beautiful and heartbreaking films uh, because because the film, I think, is less about the characters themselves and more about the audience, the people watching it. Because, like you said, the, the critique on people's curiosity and stuff like that, it extends David Lynch is able to extend it beyond the interaction of the characters and. Put the people who are watching the movie in the hot seat why did you come to watch a movie called the elephant what what were you hoping and expecting to see you you see the makeup on john hurt and what what feelings are you possessed by are you as horrified as the people in in the film are you as disgusted um and then over the course of the film you yourself begin to to change you realize wow John John Merrick is a human being. He is a man, you know he he is smart. he even if he wasn't smart, he is someone who deserves basic human empathy and respect, and that's something that transforms in the viewer um over the course of the film, I believe um, it's it's achingly beautiful in that regards, and how Lynch brings that out is so. Masterful. Um, one one background piece that I think is hilarious is, as Corey mentioned, it's produced by Mel Brooks for his uh, Brooks Film Production Company. Mel Brooks saw Eraserhead and met and de- demanded to meet David Lynch and was just like, "You are a madman. I love you. Please make a movie for me." <laughs> um, <laughs> and and that movie ended up being The Elephant Man, which is not something that. It doesn't seem like it could be from the same director, but it's very obviously a David Lynch movie. It's such his movie. Um, but when you try to piece it at the time, like, what would this movie be like from the creator of Eraserhead? You yourself, you know, you're now instead of being curious about what the Elephant Man looks like, you're being curious about what The Elephant Man, the movie, is going to look like. And David Lynch is playing with your expectations of what you want or are looking for in his movie based off of, oh, you've seen a head, so now you think you know what this is going to be like. Um, I'm sure a lot of people thought that it was going to be an exploitative film about The Elephant Man and were not prepared for the turns that he, he puts the audience through.
0: Um, yeah, and I think that observation about, like, there is this extra layer um, where, especially in the beginning of the film, when we don't see the Elephant Man, like the first time we see it, it's gotta be like 30-40 minutes into the film, when a nurse walks up, it's bringing the Elephant Man his breakfast, and uh, she she, and the audience finally sees the, the whole um, being, I guess, of the Elephant Man. Um, you see John Merrick in his full form. Um, and you see that he has like the large growth on his head. He has the arm that looks um, very large and deformed. And the the woman drops the food and is just horrified by uh, by this person uh, laying on the bed before her. And that's also the first time the audience sees it. And it's like, oh, this is uh, this is what has been a sideshow act from this point or up until this point. And this is what we've been looking for as an audience. Uh, we wanted to see what's what was going on here.
2: Yeah, and he builds that expectation up by showing him in glimpses or in silhouette. Um, like, we see him many times before that point, but we don't see him clearly. We're not actually able to gaze upon him. And that's that's that play on expectations that, that where he's... Kind of messing with the audience and making it so that the audience wants to see what he looks like. you're not caring about him as a person because you just want to see what he looks like and David Lynch creates that expectation so that he can smash it down. It's really cool
0: mm-hmm. yeah then like the gradual building up of uh of John merrick's humanity by uh, by way of Treves just slowly te- quote unquote teaching him how to speak um. But then we learn that he, he knows how to speak, knows how to read, he's a very intelligent person. Um he's just terrified that if he shows any of these things he'll be seen as even more of a sideshow or beaten even harder for being a nerd, I
1: guess.
2: Yeah. Alright, so what did, what did we what did we like about the movie, Chris?
1: Um so the f- first thing I would say is is I I liked how it balanced the kind of the surrealism that David Lynch exhibited basically throughout Eraserhead. There's these breaks where breaks in the movie, um, you know, the opening and the ending both that are very much like, Oh yeah, this is clearly David Lynch at work. Uh, And then there's breaks throughout the movie that are just quiet and brooding. And there is that good old humming in the background, um, owing to himself, owing to David Lynch as a painter, just to make you absorb the entire atmosphere of either the the a lot of the times I think it was meant to just take you out from the drama of the movie and just make you sit back and observe the setting and everything and really take in what the world that um, these characters and especially um, John Merrick are um, exposed to. Um, but what I think the real best part and what makes the movie so so strong is that it's this treatise on our curiosity playing with those expectations and by the end like you almost just feel terrible for John Merrick even though at the end of his life um, for the last couple years he was given a very good life by these few compassionate individuals he never was able to escape that level of people having this gulking curiosity towards him and there's you know the big climax when the um when people come by basically to 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 where he lives just to gawk and, and stare at him and, and it turns violent and rowdy and he's abducted and it's so heartbreaking because at that point he's in the process of dying from the complications of whatever they don't they never they don't explicitly say like what ailment he has that's causing the deformity but it's clearly a contributor in him having a relatively short life um and so as a consequence of that you know we really i think really like, just feel so terrible for him because he had so much less time than than most people get um to experience life and so much less time on top of that that he was really allowed to experience life he was a sideshow attraction you know cast aside by people for years just because of the way he looked finally falls into the arms of a couple people who you know meet him, learn about him and go, this is, you know, this is a good, intelligent man. We're going to give him a good life because he's generally a joy to be around. Um, And unfortunately, those people are so few and far between. Most people still just see him as this attraction. And I think what really hits home is that the very last second to last scene when he's at the theater and he gets a standing ovation from the crowd because a, a very famous and reputable actress draws attention to him as this wonderful person that she truly admires. Um, and he's able to have his last moments, I guess, of life, um, his last great moments of life being this really positive memory where the, he's able to at least feel that people care about him as a man. And there's of course the cl- the line that is taken out of context or in context in a lot of other medium since, which is, I am not an animal that he says in the movie. Um, and I think that's the point that that leads directly into that scene where he's now accepted as a man among society. So it's about that. It's, it's as much a critique on our expectations as it is meant to give us the emotional power force of seeing seeing Merrick be treated as a man that he should be treated as. Now, there's no, no debate whether this is the right way to treat him. It's just what it should be and how it takes two hours of movie for us to get there.
0: Yeah, I'm really a really big fan of, uh, what, I mean, Lynch is really good at this kind of slow burny type storytelling, um, and it really worked well in this one, just because of, um, like what we've been talking about this whole time, the uh, slow reveal of the Elephant Man, um, and then the slow reveal of John Merrick's humanity, up until the point when, um, you see the best part of his life, and, uh, his tragic passing his
2: his passing that is that is one powerful scene uh, where he basically he he commits suicide just by wanting to feel normal because it's mentioned er, earlier in the movie that he wishes that he could sleep like like quote-unquote normal people sleep and and he he's fulfilled with that you know that pride that that he feels accepted that he feels validated as a a human being with that uh standing ovation he knows he's dying and it's it's but to me it's less about going for this the sweet release going out on his terms as it is what's the one other thing that I still have always wanted out of life that I've never been able to have. Um, and it's to be able to sleep.
0: Yeah. Because he, like to this point, he has experienced all these things. He has met the, uh, um, the theater actress. He has felt the kindness from, um, and his wife to the point of breaking down in tears just because he doesn't, he has not experienced this, uh, since, uh, his mother, um, and then he goes to the theater. He receives this round of applause for being here and being a friend of the uh, the theater actress. And this is how he sees the the pinnacle of his life.
2: One of the things. Sorry, I'm all I'm all super teary. <laughs> um, one of the one of the things that's that the that I also really love about this film is the the brunt the the brute force. Um, of that scene where the the onlookers burst into his his room and the as chris had mentioned it turns violent they're shoving liquor down his throat they're pushing him and bullying him and and they eventually show him a mirror so that he can see himself and it terrifies him the the way that the film explodes like that that scene feels like an explosion with the sound design um, the score, um, and then the the, the the editing. It's this moment where where we realize that we were not so different that long ago. We simply allowed ourselves to see him um, as a human being, and now when we see the same behavior that we had previously exhibited earlier in the film, I want to see him. I want to see him. Oh my god! Look at that that makeup design. That's that's terrifying when that is that is not just Jim holding up a mirror to the elephant man. That is David Lynch holding up a mirror to the audience. And it makes that whole scene that much more heartbreaking. Mm. It's it's a really, really powerful scene. It's it's David Lynch. It's the closest David Lynch gets in this movie to being surreal without breaking into a dream sequence or a surreal sequence. Um, by keeping it within the context and the framework of the film itself. Um, And I think that that transforms it a lot. Um, I really do. I think this is not close to my favorite David Lynch film because I prefer the very overtly weird and obtuse David Lynch, of course. But uh, this this is considered his best film by people who don't like that overtly and uh, obtuse David Lynch and it's easy to see why it's it's all of his trademarks believe it or not all of his trademarks within the context of a quote-unquote normal film it's 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 still all about that what what do we consider normal what do we expect from a normal thing whether it be a, a person or a film and it just shatters all of it um as Chris had mentioned, the the whole bit about Dr. Treves realizing that that he's also an exploitator is a bit heavy-handed, but I want to just take a moment to appreciate Anthony Hopkins as an actor, because he is tremendous in this film as Dr. Treves, and not just myself, but most of the world at this point is used to Anthony Hopkins, the scenery-chewing over actor. Um a lot of people don't get to to watch older Anthony Hopkins, where he's just genuinely a good a- actor that he really is able to command a scene with subtlety and quiet and power, um, not just eating a, a liver with a nice Chianti and some fava beans, which has basically been his mode since 1991. Um.
1: <laughs> I thought I thought the same thing. Like this is this is how this is how you can see Anthony Hopkins got to the point of being able to just be so reputable that he could kind of yeah do that play anthony hopkins in movies for the last 30 years yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> like big shout out uh Anne bancroft as miss kendall
1: she's uh terrific uh, she's just she's a legend yeah she's she's fantastic in this mm-hmm. and she's a she's the first person
2: that we see um she she first learns about John Merrick by reading that newspaper article that uh, the governor of the hospital had written, the, the letter. And she is the first person that is like, wow, I, he sounds like a really wonderful human being. Completely doesn't care that the article talks about how deformed he is or anything like that. Just he sounds like a genuinely good human being. She would love to meet him. And when she she gets to meet him, he she presents him with two gifts: a picture of herself, which is such a movie star thing to do, um, and a copy of Romeo and Juliet. And throughout that that whole interaction, she never is oh my god like horrified or disgusted like a lot of the other people that come and visit. You can see on their face the shock of seeing him, and then. You can see it softening as they talk to him and interact with him. She was soft from the very beginning of that interaction. She is the one person who treated him like every human being deserves to be treated from the get-go. Um, and that—that that, I think that's what makes the the scene where she dedicates her performance to him at the end. That's what makes that work is because she truly cared uh, from the from the first time she had heard about him
0: yeah and i love those scenes with uh with Anne bancroft trying not trying but um you know being a decent human being for the uh probably the first character that we see from the get-go be a decent human being toward uh john merrick um and just being uh being a friend there for for merrick um in a way that uh that Krebs and his wife has been, have been, but like the first interaction with Krebs is that we see him, um, exhibit him the same way that the, the, that the circus person did. So,
2: yeah, I mean, a part of me wants to switch gears to the, uh, you know, what did we dislike about the film aspect, but like, I'm, I have no input there. I mean, this is a really tremendously great crafted film.
1: Um, Yeah, there's not a lot I could complain about. I mean, so one thing, and this is not the fault of anybody involved with the movie because it's post this movie that it became painfully overused in every dramatic climatic scene ever, but the use of Adagio for strings at the end, (laughs) not the fault of anybody involved in this movie. They (laughs) could not have anticipated that Platoon would come out and a couple years later, and from there it would just be this incredibly overused piece of music. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I, mean, so I blame it, I blame Oliver Stone for that that's, his fault.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's a good person to blame for a lot of things um, one of the, one of the things about and, and it's along the same lines it's no fault of the film itself the climactic scene when he escapes from the carnival um, the second time and returns to London and he's being chased in the subway I think or the train station Yeah. Um, and he's just being hounded by all these people like oh my god look at this monster and he screams the famous line from this movie i am not an elephant i am not an animal i am a human being um especially with john hurt's cadence i am a human being That has been, like, parodied and spoofed to no end. (laughs) And so, like, that happens with a lot of movies and a lot of movies' famous lines um, where it gets spoofed, like, in The Simpsons and stuff like that. And it's kind of just lighthearted. They're not, like, really making fun of the line. They're just, oh, my, we have to say the line. You got to say the line um when you watch the movie for the first time after being exposed to the, the spoofing of it like it kind of makes me mad because it's such a powerful and beautiful moment it's such a sad moment that the fact that it's a punchline in other media just kind of makes me mad um, cuz i we i was ta- we were talking a little bit before we started recording I didn't see this movie until 2017. This was the last David Lynch movie that I watched uh, because it was hard to come by at that time. Uh, The DVD was out of print, or you know, not considered to look pretty good. There was no Blu-ray or anything. I imported an Italian Blu-ray so that I could watch it in the nice, pretty colors. Even you know, it's a black and white movie, but you know, black. In my opinion. No movie looks better on Blu-ray than a black and white movie. Something about the two tone just really, really pops and looks so clean and pristine on Blu-ray. Um, oh my God, yeah, Blu-ray was built for black and white movies in my opinion. <laughs> um, and I, so my my entire life, I was what thirty-five at the time. So that's that's a that's a good number of years where. I am not an animal, I am a human being has been a parodied punchline, um, a, a good good na- natured reference. And then you watch the movie and you're just like gripping your heart when he says that line. I was mad. <laughs> you know? So some things command respect. And I, I feel that the, that, the, that line is one of those things that commands respect.
0: Yeah, like, I mean, I think because, I mean, I, I think it is because it is such an impactful and emotional moment and, like, well-known moment, uh, especially given, um, like, taking out of context, given John Herc's uh, incredible overacting of it, um, it is because of all those reasons that it is so... Parody. I've never seen a parody. Well, I've probably seen the Simpsons parody because I've watched a lot of Simpsons episodes, but I didn't recognize it as such because I've not watched whatever Simpsons episode it was since then because I watched this movie last night at like 10 o'clock. Uh, but all of these uh, things in media are just uh, overused or make fun of, or not make fun of, but uh, turned into a joke because like the people who wrote those jokes are uh, or were so impacted by them. I think that speaks to the the gravity of this moment within the context of the film, and also within the context of the greater cultural zeitgeist of Elephant Man, the movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I think it definitely had most of the parodying was done at pro- most likely by people who saw the movie were you know Im- were impacted by it and thought oh this will be a funny nod to this thing I like. Not, never, never considering that, then the funny nod becomes what people recognize. Um, the Simpsons, I noted, it, Seinfeld had Jerry say, I am not an animal, uh, dramatically, when cornered for picking his nose, like, in just, like, the most stupid <laughs> Seinfeld thing you can do. <laughs> like, I am not an animal! <laughs> um, I, and I know it's been elsewhere, too, like, that line... Um, which is so powerful in the movie like that entire build-up to it is just man you just feel like it's such a frantic scene he's running through this chaotic maze of a of a um, train st- train station um stairs everywhere people everywhere and then like the crowd keeps growing and he just eventually gets cornered and collapses and says that line it's such and it's just an incredibly made, like well constructed scene, but none of it matters without John Hurt say like delivering that line as well as he did. Um, it just closes it out so powerfully, and he's I mean he's incredible in this movie. Anthony Hopkins is such just a convincing act, like so convincing in this movie. Um, without yeah without as you said the Anthony Hopkins overacting that we've all grown accustomed to, where he's just playing Anthony Hopkins. Um, I th- yeah I, I, I think if there there's criticisms it's based on the fact that we have 40 years since this movie came out and parts of it have been adapted or have lost their impact because of where most of us get exposed to the key some of the key items in the movie such as that line or A adagio for strings like this was was this like the first movie to use that in the soundtrack do we know? I have no clue uh,
0: specifically in the in the book like um David Lynch talks in that, like, Lynch, but it's also from the Lynch by Lynch book or whatever it's called. Um, he talks about wanting to use this piece of music, and he had that piece of music, and then, uh, one from the, the person who did the rest of the, the soundtrack, uh, John Morris, and, uh, Mel Brooks showed both of them to the person who owned that, uh, that song, that I have, uh, already forgotten, the Doshio by Springs. um... And he's like, all right, turn to him at the end. And he's like, all right, this is this is the, the song that we want to use. It's clearly Beggar Do you agree? And he's like, fine. And like, basically, this entire movie is David Lynch getting to do whatever the fuck he wants to do, because Mel Brooks says, yes, do whatever you want to do. And everyone else is like, well, I'm not going to say no to Mel Brooks.
2: Which is why I think this movie is so good. It's David Lynch got creative control.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, he he. We'll, we'll get into it a lot more next month, but he did not have creative control on one movie, and because of that experience, he never got to do like the big movies that he was going to do, and he went back to small movies and got to be David Lynch because he was like, fuck you, no, I want creative control. That was taken away from me once, and oh boy, never again.
1: Yeah, I think so I think this movie really shows the the alternate universe where David Lynch you know has creative control over his movies and becomes this just instead of maybe a more cult level filmmaker he's heralded as is in the same breath as like all the great award winning directors um, but this is basically and he, and he's been nominated for awards and he's he's been still very well regarded um, because he takes his own he's because he really gets his own voice through in his movies because he's forced himself to only basically only answer to himself but um the alternate universe where he's doing these big studio productions and he's able to do them brilliantly uh he has that ability um and we only need one movie to really see that and this is that movie
0: but to your question 15 minutes ago chris uh there, there's nothing bad about this movie that i can really see um <laughs> i read it four and a half stars, for whatever that means, on Letterboxd, but, like, a lot of these movies that, like, I really love might be five-star movies. I try not to just give that stamp of five stars immediately, just, um, I want to give it time to stew in my brain, maybe give it a rewatch, but, like, this one is so full of, uh, hearts and humanity that, um, I can't imagine disliking it <laughs> in in, in any way um, and that's not just David Lynch's talent that is the talent of the cast in it as well uh, like f- uh, the various funny moments in the in the book like 2 where w- one of the actresses I forget who it was but um, uh, like the first day she grabbed David Lynch by the collar and basically said prove yourself to me not not in those exact words, but, like, th- that was Herring tanks. He's like, all right, yeah, I'm a nobody, and I'm working with fucking Anthony Hopkins and John Hurt.
2: Yeah. Um, one of the things about this, that we've mentioned it a bunch of times, I just want to put a pin on it and, and say, you know, while moving forward, because David Lynch you know, is is a true artist. He carries on themes and he does a lot of stuff and they're all part of a whole unit of work for him. Um, The thing that this movie brings out that we didn't see in Eraserhead is his empathy. Um, David Lynch is so full of empathy um, in the way that he looks at people. Um, I just want to call that out say you know think about that and remember that as we move forward through his films uh because there's going to be a lot of challenging ideas that you're going to be like well this or that but remember david lynch's empathy from this film um and how that plays into his future works
0: yeah so i found the full quote um david lynch says i work with some of the best very best people and they didn't know me, like Wendy Hiller, who played the, uh, I believe she played the uh, old woman who was, like, the, seemingly the nurse hag person. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, the first day she's on the set, she grabs me by the collar and walks me around the room and says, I don't know you, I'll be watching you, and we'll see.
2: <laughs> yeah, can you imagine, like, David Lynch was probably, like, 25 years old or something <laughs> when he <laughs> when he made this movie?
0: Yep, and he's just done Eraser Heg before this, and, like, no one knows what the fuck Eraser Heg is at this point. Yep. Um, yeah, very, very good moment. Um, also, I did not read any of the cast before this, but one of the, um, one of the people with dwarfism that was in the movie is, the who played R2-D2. Oh, wow. Very funny. Anyway.
2: Yeah, I i can't remember many of the people uh with dwarfism that were in the movies it's not warwick davis because he's the most famous one so his name is the only name that pops out in my brain um but i'm I'm just sitting here trying to remember the name of the the guy who played r2d2 and i'm just
0: completely blank kenny baker
2: kenny baker yes he was also in uh time bandits
0: and labyrinth
2: good movie
0: i've not seen either of those
2: oh time bandits
0: is great you should watch time bandits i think i have it that's uh terry gilling right
2: yeah all right well i mean we we we're less much less structured this time around we just kind of kind of rambled which is what we do best um i can't think of anything any other angles that we that uh, could attack this from does anyone have anything else they want to say before we close this out
1: no, I think we'll we'll stock up our negativity for the next movie we talk about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm very much looking forward to revisiting Dune. I uh, don't know how much I'll like it, but I'm interested. Yeah, we'll,
2: we'll see. I don't think it's I don't think it's as bad as people make it out to be, but I wouldn't go f- as far to say that it it's a successful movie. Hmm. Um, just so that everybody's on the same page, listeners included, uh, when we do Dune, we're going to be going over the theatrical version, the one that actually has David Lynch's name on it. Um,
0: <laughs> there are other versions of it.
2: Yeah, there's a there's a extended cut that the studio put out, and David Lynch was le- was not involved with it, so he said, "Fuck you, take my name off of it." Mm. So it's it's that version is quote unquote directed by Alan Smithy.
0: Release the Snyder Cut of Dune. <laughs>
2: Dude, That's right. Release the Lynch Cut of Dune. Um, but yeah, so we'll be doing the, the the theatrical version of
1: Dune. I actually think I've only seen the the maybe I'm not sure. Whatever aired all the time on Sci Fi Channel back in the day.
2: I think that's the Alan Smithy cut.
1: That would make sense based on the fact that that was like the TV cut. Yeah,
2: it's like three and a half hours long. It's perfect for airing in two parts on TV. Yeah, it, which is which is how it was was designed. Was it airs in two parts on TV? Um, that was what I had watched when I was a kid, because um, that's what my parents had recorded on VHS.
0: Yeah, the Wikipedia says running time: 186 minutes, 1988 TV version.
1: Yeah. Oh,
0: music by Toto.
1: <laughs> and and Brian Eno, mainly Toto. This is the Toto soundtrack, I think.
2: But that's for next month. Any final closing <laughs> thoughts on The Elephant Man? <laughs> uh,
1: absolutely.
2: Um,
0: it's,
1: it's beautiful film.
0: Yeah. yeah, absolutely watch this movie. If you're not a fan of David Lynch, it, it is not. David Lynch, in the way that you have either uh, a knowledge or impression of him, it is just a movie full of uh, art and humanity that is um, a must-watch for... Uh, anyone who is a fan of film i think
2: and it's still very much a david lynch film too so you'll it's it's not an anomaly it's it's still very much him so have your preconceptions challenged
0: yeah you can definitely tell that this is a lynch film in the way that he is framing the initial reveal of the elephant man etc etc
2: yeah i'll just simply echo chris and it's a beautiful beautiful film
0: Oh, the, the one thing that I forgot, that I just remembered, is that he is, he is the Elephant Man. Uh, John Merrick has been building this model of uh, the cathedral, this whole movie. Um, it was partially broken when the the Grunkers walked in, and he when he comes back, he fixes it, he finishes it, and that that is also the final scene, when he finishes it, signs his name, and lays himself to rest. Um, and I loved that thematic through life, um, him building this cathedral scene. Uh, Having a great day, finishing his life's work, it seems, and then um, calling it quicks. Uh, Alright, let's close this segment, out. Where can we find you on the internet, Chris?
1: I am um, on Twitter, at Antonius Pius.
0: Alright, let's take a short break, and Chris and I will be back with Basil to talk about Ace of Diamonds.
2: Then baseball boys.
0: We're back. Chris is still with me, and joining us is Basil.
3: Hello. Yes, I'm filling in for the guy in Alabama who likes baseball slot.
0: Uh, indeed. Um, what's your What's your southern accent like? Can you just pretend that you're Jareg this whole time? Uh, uh, or do you like to no, play don't. two characters?
3: God, no, I don't. Look, growing up, I had very much apprehensions of living in the South, so... I mentally beat my southern accent away. I'm sure it still comes out here and there, but I, I now that I'm more okay with having a southern accent, I don't have it anymore. Whereas, I guess, Jared never had that issue.
0: He just leans into it. Yeah. Uh. Alright, so, we're here to talk about Ace of Diamonds, Act 2, based off of the manga of the same name, as was pointed out before we started recording. Um, That's right, is-
2: it's not the same manga, y'all. It's a sequel manga.
0: Exactly. Sequel manga. Currently 23 volumes ongoing. Uh, the first manga, which was presumably the entire first anime, was 47 volumes, getting to 126 episodes, plus 5 OAVs. I don't remember seeing OAVs, but whatever. Um, but we're here to talk about the 52-episode anime series. And Chris, uh, no need to explain the first part. Well, what is this anime?
2: Well, let's see. This anime is about the, the continuing adventures of the Sato baseball team, Uh, It picks up basically where the last one left off, except not. So where the the, the final scene of the first series was kind of like just this montage of them playing at Koshien uh, for the fall tournament. And this one picks up. They're actually still playing, and my brain didn't jive quite right, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. They play a couple of games at Koshien. They do kind of good, and then they lose. Oh, no. Sad, sad, sad tears. Everybody goes home wounded. I don't think there was any, like... It's been a while since I watched these episodes.
0: No, so very very critically. I don't think there
2: was any big, big issue. Like, it was just, nope, they played a better team and they lost, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, but very critically in this is that I believe furia was in for most of the game, or if not all of the game. And Saomura, well, the point is Saomura never got the chance to play in the game, so, like, his dramatic moment at the end of that arc was that he picked up the uh, dirt from the bullpen mound and said, I'm never going to be here again. Oh,
2: that makes me sad.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: like, yeah, I think, wasn't, like, the 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 opposing team's pitcher was, like, he is, like, one of the uh, super awesome, amazing pitchers, and he was actually pretty much pitching through pure spite and rage because no one else has to deal with living up north like they do.
0: Yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> they're they're a, a, a Hokkaido team. team. <laughs> yeah. And they like have to play through the snow and they're like, no one else plays through the snow but us.
2: That's kinda funny. Uh but then it's business as usual um as it comes to second series of sports anime. Everybody our first years, uh Salamura, Furuya the awesome guy with the pink hair whose brother died when the third years retired
0: Um, and he didn't die die.
2: they retired He
3: just graduated
2: yeah it's the same (laughs) thing y'all it's the same thing (laughs) um i guess we're talking about baseball anime with with adachi hanging looming over i guess we can't joke about that because that dude murders everybody um And uh, we get a new batch of first years in, and it is training time. It is kind of where it goes. There's a lot. It's 52 episodes. I'm not going to walk us through the whole thing, but that's the basic setup, y'all. I'm going to throw in as many y'alls as I can for Jared, but I don't know. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, so I, uh, I really, really enjoyed this series. If you listen to our top anime podcast, you'll know that I put it in the top anime because of the arc that he was able to complete for Sawamura here from the point that I mentioned of uh, taking the, the bullpen Derek at Koshien, saying that he's never going to be here again to the, to the eventual point where he gets at the end of the series, which is having the ace number and being uh, the proverbial titular ace of the diamonds. Um, so like And I,
3: finally, finally, like the entire run of that first epic super long season and this season Everything's been building up to this one moment, and boy, does the anime nail it! Now, now, see, I'm of two minds
2: on that one. Are we are we ready to jump straight to that? Uh, sure. Sure. <laughs> the anime definitely nails it with that final episode, but the the actual christening of him getting the the ace number is such an afterthought. Like I thought, <laughs> I thought it was kind of hilarious. It's just like. Yeah, so you're the ace now, and everyone's like, cool, and it bounces between them getting ready to go play a game or whatever, and flashing back to when uh, everybody has given their numbers. And it was just, it just, it just played so nonchalantly that I was like, wow, this is the most epic letdown ever. Like I, as I was watching this this season, I was really thinking that that they were going to have him you are now the ace, and have that be like the last episode or something like that. Then they're just like, oh, you're the ace, and there's eight episodes left. Don't worry about it. We're just gonna keep going with it.
3: <laughs> I I forget, because it's been a minute since I actually watched all these episodes, because I was watching them as they were coming out. Yep, but same. I'm pretty sure at some point during this whole Cyberpunk so Coming Ace, they finally brought back the Go Exceed opening that OXT did, and that just reminded me just how much I love OXT and how confused <laughs> I am as so, somehow Glay has now become the opening like create the, the opening animation like band. When, when did they have to, when did they t- cause OXT was actually formed sort of around making that opening go exceed. And somehow they're now relegated to the, to the, the ending theme guys Whereas as Glay who, are great and they've had a very prestigious you know long history it's probably why they actually are now the opening folks but they're the opening folks for ace of diamond now and it's weird
2: (laughs) the the second opening theme for this season feels like an ending theme it's
3: super
0: bizarre i do not as on brand uh, i do not recall what any of the songs are
2: what's hilariously more on brand Corey? have you been listening to the soundtracks that i found for you on spotify no no oh because i was gonna say like if you had actually been listening to them it's like does any of this sound familiar from the show or not (laughs) (laughs) oh so so for the outer world that's listening to this podcast yeah like there's like 10 ace of diamond soundtracks up on spotify so you go get your fill of that hard rock goodness
3: i i will (laughs) <laughs> hell yeah but i just remember the moment where they did it and they started like showing the scenes of him like going through the things it was sort of a a really like fast recap of salamora's journey culminating him and finally getting the ace and we were playing the the original opening and i'm like yes yes finally and it's still salamora so he still kinds of messes it up here and there <laughs> but that's what makes him so enjoyable to, to watch
2: yeah, no, it, that was super good, but that was like the, the following episode. It was super weird. Uh, <laughs> I just watched those episodes, and I, I, or maybe not the following episode, but like the second half of the episode. They went, they went back and pre-filled it. Um, but yeah, it was just very nonchalant at first, and then they went back and filled it in and made it a little bit more epic. But they did, they, they did nail it, in my opinion, with the final episode. The final episode really feels. We're, we're, we're five minutes into the podcast and I'm talking about the final. <laughs> this, is, this is
3: good it, stuff. It makes it really excited for an eventual extra new season.
2: Yes. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's where it's where you really feel that Sawamura. So there's a difference. And, and this is one of the things that this season did a really, really good job of throughout um, with Veruya's arc and Sawamura's arc is that being the ace is more than just having the number. And so with those last uh, eight episodes, Sawamura gets the number, but the final episode, it's, it's where you really feel that Sawamura becomes the ace. Like he really understands the weight of it and he's ready to become the ace because he's been fucking up and nervous and doing all the stupid Sawamura shit um, after he got the ace number for like those two or three games that are played in those last eight episodes. And then it's like, no, now Sawamura is the ace, and the series ends, and you get really pissed off because now you're ripping, raring, and roaring. You just want to keep going. Um, I think they nailed that perfectly.
0: Yeah, and I think, like, even leading up to Sawamura getting the ace number and, like, Furia, because I, once they lost the Koshin, or once they got knocked out of the Koshin. I believe the coach was like, all right, no one has any numbers, no one's spot is guaranteed, except like obviously people's spots are guaranteed. But the point is that we don't really know, <laughs> what, we don't know whether it's going to be Sour or Furia based on performance in the Koshian, because like both of them performed very well, uh, both at the Koshian and leading up to that. But like they both realized that whose spot was definitely guaranteed, Whisper, no one, no one knows that, but everyone knows that. Uh, Uh, they realize that Miyuki is going to graduate at some point, and, like, he's the one that really makes Sawamura who he is at the beginning, and he's not going to be around for Sawamura's last year, which is obviously going to be very important. He's going to gain the most experience, so we have this, like, these two new first-year catchers, Yui, who's a smaller catcher, um, and Okamura, who is more of a Miyuki-type and kind of quiet and very confrontational with Sawamura, um, and that, that, at that point Sawamura and Furio start working with those two and like really uh, growing as individual pictures rather than pictures that throw with Miyuki I
2: really, I really like that setup with the two new catchers too because it, we, we know Miyuki, he's not going to last beyond this section of the, uh, of, this, of the story when it gets to Act 3 he's going to be gone um, so they had to do something and I think what they're doing with these two pitchers is really, really smart, even though they're obviously setting up Baby May. Uh, Okamura looks exactly like May to me. and it, keep, it kept freaking me out because I, <laughs> fir- I watched the first half of the series like six months ago, and then I watched the second half last week and the week before. <laughs> so like, I f- kind of forgot who everybody was. I knew somebody in there was related to somebody. I eventually figured it out who was related to who, but I was, there, I was like, is this like Narumiya's little brother or some shit that that'd be cool to play against his big brother. But no, that's not the case. He just looks a lot like him. Uh, <laughs> but he's his, I think he's a good foil for Sawamura because he's got the same attitude as Furuya except he has a personality from the start. <laughs>
3: oh, I was about to say that. I was actually about to say that. I okay, mean, Okamura's great, because I realized, oh, wait, we never gave Furia a real personality. We should fix that already. <laughs> and they made it Okamura, therefore further invalidating Furia, even though, as I mentioned, pregame. game <laughs> that uh, they really did a really great job for a, really drawing on some some faces onto his cardboard cutout to try and pretend like there's some definite that character. No. But Okamura actually has that depth. In it. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: I I really liked what they did with Furia uh, in this in this series. He's not a fully fleshed out character. Like you you're right, he's not Okamura or Sawamura. Or like half of the other people on the team, but they really gave Feruya some some dimension to where I actually gave a shit, um, and that was kind of amazing. So for the people listening, what happens is uh, Feruya gets injured and basically gets taken off the team for for two weeks, and then he has to like reacclimate himself to pitching so that he doesn't hurt himself again or even worse and it's during that time period where they start letting Sawamura really start taking a foothold and he starts to to shine um as they say and you actually get conversations like Furuya talks to Sawamura in this season he he says that he has feelings it's really jarring considering the Furuya that we had for 150 episodes <laughs> You mean the
3: guy who would just occasionally growl and do Dragon Ball Z powering up notions whenever he's slightly annoyed?
2: (laughs) Yes, that was all he did. Now he's talking. Um, And, you know, maybe it's a case of too little too late uh, for you, Basil, but, like, I really dug that. I thought it was really good for the series as a whole because now, now I actually cared about the rivalry. I actually gave a shit a little bit about Furuya because it, it did a good job of making it seem, not making it seem of giving you insight into that oh yeah Furuya actually does care a little bit because he talked and had feelings instead of just being angry so so now that you know that he cares you kind of get into his get his back a little bit and so it actually makes the rivalry between him and Sawamura more palpable um, much more tangible and Exciting in that manner for when for when there's they're battling for the the ace number.
0: Yeah. And I mean, like I wrote in my review of the last episode that Furia has basically been a pitching machine because I disguised as a character this whole time. And, like, that's... I still agree with that take, uh, because... uh, Well, I wrote it, but also because... um, Like, I've always believed in the rivalry on the field between Furia and Sarumara. Like, the the show does a very good job at showing how uh, Furia is this rival on the mound and how he just has all of this innate talent and stuff. But, yeah, he has uh, basically no character until... uh, Up until the that like other terrible coach coach's name ochi I think um
2: little until, goatee boy yeah you know? yeah yeah
0: until he was he came in he's like oh you should gotta go slider like and that, that's his that was his character <laughs> <laughs> in the first season basically um, but yeah in the second season we get these nice moments where he has lines more than I want to pitch
3: yeah mm-hmm. yeah no no uh, every, I mean the whole show is sort of coached around agent Samura's journey. And I think that what they really needed to do because where Summer so started at, you know, in, in middle school was that he was a bit wild and untamed and as and he had a lot of potential. And so they bring him to this, you know, Sado this this really high end, will really well established team and with Miyuki and stuff they, they start, you know, honing him. But I guess they wanted to show, hey, this is what you could be eventually with for, yeah, so I guess he didn't really need to have a personality. He just had to pitch real good and pitch real fast for, for for Samora. But as time has gone on, you know, they have molded Samora into, like, this awesome pitching machine. Like, he has accuracy. He has really interesting pitches. He's very dependable now. And so I guess they're like, well, crap, we've really, really leveled Samora up. I guess we should do something with Fauia. I guess. um, all right, so you get to have feelings. we've We've decided this here on the Ace of Diamond story team. So you have fun with that, but oh man, just really getting to see, you know, agent really just be like, all right, no, i I gotta do it. I gotta be good at this. The team's gonna count on me, and I have learned that if I'm not good, I don't get on that mound. I have to be the best, most dependable, good pitcher I can be. And they really show that off as... Yeah,
0: and and oftentimes, it's not even that if he's not good. It's like if he's not way better than the other option, which is Furia. And like in that situation where they lost the game in Koshien, he wasn't way better than Furia. And uh, in Japanese high school baseball, they have this... uh, This idea that you need to just keep the picture in for the whole game to be able to uh, really put the weight of that ace number on him, despite what all of the analytics say, just ask Kevin Cash and the Tampa Bay Rays. But yeah, like if this were a Major League Baseball game and Furrier was struggling at all in some sort of large situation and there is someone like Sawamura right behind him, he's absolutely not staying in that game. It's only in this context of the anime where you like, or in the context of Japanese high school baseball, I guess, as I understand it, even though I've watched zero of it outside of an anime context.
3: Yeah, I don't, I guess it's more dramatic to have the whole ace thing be like, no, you are the ace. You've got to stay in the whole time. That's That's the mark of a true baseballer guy, even though that's absolutely not what actually happens anywhere else I've ever seen baseball played. But it makes for real good drama. So, hey.
2: Well, the show doesn't even, like, hammer that in. That's just Sawamura and Furuya. I want to pitch as much as humanly possible. Because, like, every team that they play, they're like, we have the starting ace or the relief ace. And, ooh, they're using their ace in this way and that way. And, ooh, the 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 changeup thing where they keep rotating players every two or three innings. Every team does something unique and different with their ace and treats them like human beings who can't pitch for nine innings straight. Um, it's just Sawamura and Faruya that are just like, no, I must do this. This is what I must do. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't even think coach wants that. <laughs> like, like, Well, coach- I remember
3: in the first season, it was actually kind of interesting that Sato had a pitching rotation. Like A lot of the other coaches were like, huh, they've got a pitching rotation. That's weird. Yeah, Yeah, because
0: these other ones are just so intense that you'll just throw an ace out there, nine innings per game, hungering 30 pitches per game, uh, and then one day rest, and then do it again.
3: Gosh, no wonder Furia got injured. (laughs) 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 Although I must have really dug into Furia because they lost to a Hokkaido team, and that's where Furia's from. And he was apparently so strong, and now there's this other guy in Hokkaido that's actually better than him. Ah, uh, that had to, that had to really, really dig in, and make some character growth happen.
0: <laughs> but they skipped that. <laughs> maybe that'll be yeah. in the next season.
3: I I do kind of wonder if maybe you know, as they go through on, they probably will have to face that team again, and they'll be really curious to see what pitchers they use against that other angry, anger Furia.
0: <clears throat> uh, Chris, I think we were, or you were texting me. About a particular team that they, or not that Sego faced, but that was uh, an opposition to our main characters' teams.
2: Um, let me look at our conversation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's the American team.
2: Oh, yeah, 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 okay. The All-Star, the All-Star game. Yeah. What about it?
0: <laughs> well, I don't know if you wanted to talk about it. <laughs> I can talk about it.
2: Um, so, one of the things that I thought was really neat... so. In the context of the story progression as we are going through and spoiling the whole series um, in random order, um, sorry for those that were hoping to at least get 30 minutes into the podcast before the ending is spoiled. <laughs> um,
0: that what were you here
2: <laughs> They uh, actually I can't remember the exact circumstances, but they they either didn't enter the spring tournament, the, the Kanto tournament, or they lost really, really quickly, and I think they lost to the Yakushi team. That's what my brain is trying to recall, but I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But for some reason or another, they're not in the Kanto tournament, so they just practice a whole lot. Um, and in between the Kanto tournament and the summer tournament, which is the big, the big tournament, they have a an all star team game where they pull a bunch of third year players from all across. Uh, I think it's just Tokyo, all across all across the Tokyo teams.
0: No, I think together. it is like a lot, a big part of Japan at least because they mentioned that they don't let, uh, like they didn't let uh, Inoshiro, uh, May's team and Sego form a picture catcher battery because they didn't want them to have that much information about each other.
2: Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, Which which that worked out super well. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So they get they get players from all across Japan. And instead of being against like some crazy, super all star team from America, it's just one school from America, which I think is kind of hilarious. Um, And it, it sounds like it's like a Catholic school or something like the way that the name was. It was like United Youth Front, which, wow, that sounds like the Nazi school. What? what is my brain oh no <laughs> what is happening in my mind don't wake up at 2 30 in the morning folks it's not good for you
0: there wasn't even a two thirty.
2: this morning there was yesterday there wasn't
3: oh yeah
0: okay
2: daylight savings is bad y'all
3: real bad it's terrible <laughs> we shouldn't be doing it anyways
2: <laughs> um but what i was texting to Corey about was um well i'll get to that no i'll say it now the, I found it really hilarious that this Japanese manga, the, written by a Japanese author being created into an a Japanese anime by a bunch of Japanese creators, um, still manages to make the Americans racist, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't see coming. Um, I thought it was kind of hilarious. It was just like superly casually racist too. Like at one point, some of the American teams they're watching Sato play somebody. And they're like, oh man, we thought we'd be we'd be playing a bunch of ninjas, but no, they're they're actually play they play real baseball over here. Uh, and then in the middle of the uh, of the all star game, Miyuki steals second base or he hits a double, one of the two. And one of the American guys is just like jaw drops, he's like, oh, this is how the Japanese samurai play. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, okay, so I, might, I do, uh, I looked up my review for this, I have like corrections it is the best players in Tokyo, and it was East and West Tokyo, because those are separated in like tournament bracket, I believe. Um, and then this place is called the Winged Youth Academy, W-Y-N-D. <laughs>
3: yeah. no good, less Nazi-ish, good.
2: <laughs> it's the Youth Academy.
3: Yeah.
2: Oh, so different. Um... Yeah, no, I thought that was really hilarious. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the, the All-Star game was how it was presented. Uh, the first episode I thought was a complete fucking mess. It was probably like my least favorite episode of the whole series because it kept bouncing back and forth between the All-Star game and some practice game that Sato was playing. I can't remember uh, what
0: the details were on that.
3: And I think it, that was one of the first ep, for one of the first games where Sawamura was really like showing his chops.
0: Mm. Not just Sawamura, but also Ono, oh the backup catcher who's a third year. Okay, this is when he breaks his finger too.
2: Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, but but yeah, the, the, the episode kept bouncing back and forth between, and it was it, it, there was no congruity between the two. There was no thematics. It was just like randomly cutting. Um, I thought that episode sucked (laughs) and I was sitting there, I was watching, I was like, this sucks. I was really looking forward to watching the, the all-star game. Um, and then, you know, Sato was having a game too. Like I really wanted to watch it. Thankfully the second episode fixes it and it gets more, we're going to show you this chunk from game a and this chunk from game B. And it does have congruity. It does play with the Maddox a little bit. um, and it goes on for like four or five episodes which was super awesome but yeah that first episode was super super rough and i don't know why i'm talking about this i'm so sorry
0: i wanted to bring this up specifically because the americans have this picture named jay conrad and i wrote this down uh in my review because not he Joe is Weed? no
2: <laughs> one of the other players whose name was Weed. <laughs>
0: Uh, It is Jay period, not J-A-Y as well, Uh, but Jay Conrad is clearly based off of Chris Sale, former White Sox picture, current Red Sox picture, and who is uh, 6'6", 180 pounds, I assume sopping white because he does not look like he's 180 pounds, but um, very lanky tall guy in this picture, has the same uh, three quarters sidearm-ish delivery as Chris Sale, he's Also extremely tall, except uh, this—the picture in the anime has a giant nose and really long hair, which Chris Sale does not have. But I very much enjoyed the fact that they made a Chris Sale clone in this uh, in this anime about Americans playing this Tokyo team.
2: But they made him—they made him a Fukumoto character, Kaiji right there. (laughs) That's all I could think of was like he looks like he—he looked like Kaiji or someone (laughs) from that universe. (laughs)
0: Yeah, maybe yeah. There's an amalgam of both Yeah. Yeah, I think the other thing another key thing here is that Ono uh, is playing the role of catcher while Miyuki is at the screening camp and the fact that he does break his finger um, in these episodes it forces those first two those two first year catchers to step up and really um, solidifies the relationship between Okamura and Sawamura as well Yui and Ruria. Um and I really appreciated those episodes for it and uh, as always in in baseball anime, Ono cries because he's no longer able to play baseball, and I wrote, "So suck it, Tom Hanks." There is crying in baseball.
3: Oh. <laughs> uh,
2: but, but no, man. he's not out, man. If they if they keep winning, he can make it back through Koshien. So they play. gotta win, and then Ono can 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 play again.
3: Yeah. Right, but oh man, this when they really just hammered in, you know how actually important Ono is to the team and to our pitchers. Like he's not just the other catcher. Like he's very foundational for them to become better pitchers and for the other up and coming catchers to see this, to see what Ono's doing and not just hotshot Miyuki, who's just this genius. There's this other guy, you know, pulling up from his bootstraps as it were, who's a very foundational character was, that was really nice to see them appreciate Ono. Mm -hmm.
2: It was, especially since I don't remember this character from the first series at all. They did a really good job of introducing him to me and making you know making him seem like he is such a rock. You know, I really thought Miyuki was the only fu- only fucking catcher on the <laughs> team during the first season, uh, the first series. Um, but yeah, no, they nailed everything with with that the, the, those those episodes.
0: Yeah. I mean, I remember Ono from the first season only as far as, uh, of course, they're going to have another catcher, for one, because injuries can happen. But then secondly, he was the guy that uh would sniff, not sniff, what's the opposite of sniff, exhale, uh, and, like, have the little spurts of air come back of his nose.
3: Oh, the little huff. Yeah. But if I remember correctly, I think the big thing was, like, during, like, that first, the first season, he was one of those folks that could not catch Ruria's fastballs. Hmm. And that was one of his big things was he was going to get to where he could catch those fastballs. And it wasn't just going to be Miyuki who could do that.
0: Okay. But
3: I really glad I'm really glad what they did with what they did what they did with him for this season.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean when you have uh and almost team Hungry episodes, I guess, you have the opportunity to go flesh out these background characters, these secondary characters, these tertiary characters. That's what I really love about these really long ongoing anime uh in general you get those moments with these characters and you're you're able to see uh the absolute pain and anguish not just of your broken finger but also the fact that you may not play for this baseball team that you have been spending your the last three years of real life uh dedicated to
3: and how often do we get like these super long-running anime quite like this anymore anyways like so much anime is if you're lucky you might get 24 episodes Mm -hmm. yeah
2: it, it, that's still mostly regulated to the, the big Shonen jump properties. Like black Clover is like 170 episodes or some shit now, but, whew. but yeah, an ace of diamond is unique because it's, it's running it in big chunks. The, the first season, the second season aired like immediately after the first season. So I don't even know why they bothered putting a two after it. And they just called it all the same season. Um, those were all, like, 52... Uh, one was 70 episodes, one was... The other one was 52 episodes, and now this one is 52 episodes. That's what's crazy. Usually, like, I can imagine something like Yoamushi Pedal, Like, they're over 100 episodes, too, by now, I think. But they're rocking them out in
3: 24-episode chunks. hmm Spread yeah, it's out. It's kind of like high Q in, in that respect. respect. Yeah. But, man, for, for my money, I think, from the genre of, now, that's what I call sports anime... There is nothing better than Ace of Diamond. Nothing. This is like... Because there are other baseline animes, things like Adachi, where he'll cover other topics through the lens of baseball. But this is is a show about baseball. This is a show about what the players are doing, what's their mindset when they're playing the game, how they're handling the game outside of school, during practice. It all comes back to baseball. And it's so good at it.
2: Mm-hmm. I was gonna mention something along those lines. Like this, th- there's no subplots. There's no story about what they're doing at school and the love interest. Like no, this shit is just about playing baseball, going to practice and playing games and and talking about baseball. Like this is just like hardcore. And that makes it, you know, all the more miraculous that we're at like 180 some odd episodes. And and it's probably gonna keep on going. It's like, goddamn! Like they're they're they they do not like even High ha- added a bunch of other stuff to to its formula. Uh, this is no, this is just baseball talk all the time.
0: Yeah, Hungering seventy eight episodes total. But yeah, this is,
2: this is also the longest show I think I've watched in like <laughs> over a decade.
0: <laughs> I think in terms of like a baseball. And purest baseball anime. This is as good as you're gonna get, probably. Like, Guruzani gets into the weird baseball, st- not a weird baseball stuff, but like more statistical, sabermetric ish baseball stuff. Uh, but even that doesn't go too far e- deep into sabermetrics. Um, if you wanna watch a little more on the minutia, Big Windup is, I think, better than Ace of Diamonds in some of those respects. And then, of course, uh, Agachi with literally anything he writes is more about the characters than it like, is about the baseball, but, like, for my money, ASIC Diamond* is one of the best series that like, I, I, as a baseball fan, can watch, because it's just so uh, in-depth with these characters, it grows, or the characters grow throughout the series, um, in ways both inside and outside of baseball, and also there's just a lot of baseball episodes, like, they have entire games that take 8, nine, ten episodes.
3: And it's and for 2020, it was the one time where I felt okay watching baseball and not being annoyed that they were actually playing baseball.
0: <laughs> true, true. Uh, well, did we have anything else before we jump to questions?
3: I just want to give another sh- uh, Well, an initial shout out to Kawakami. Every time he is on the screen, I'm like, yes, Kawakami, you should have been the other pitcher. Not Furia, but whatever. I'm still glad you're here, Kawakami. He's still really good. He,
2: yeah. he got decidedly much less screen time this series, too, which I thought was a bit uh, obvious, like it, conspicuous. There we go. Like, he was conspicuously not as present. Which is it, funny
3: because in this season, you also have a lot of the other third years being like, yo, yo, show. Where's Kawakami? Come on. Like, this is our last set of games. What, what, what you doing? So hopefully he gets more screen time and, and the the next chunk of this arc. Yeah.
2: And one of the, one of the other things I really like is I actually I actually was kind of disappointed that more first years didn't make the first string just so that they get you know to participate in the series because uh, that's kind of how it is if you if, if you're not on the first string you are a sub character that's just in the background during the the tryouts. And all of that stuff. I actually grew to really, really like a lot of the first years. Um, but I think that's going to build a really strong foundation for Act Three when they become second years and get more active on the team. That's laying that groundwork. But yeah, no, I, th- I think that they did a really good job with introducing a lot of really good new characters to this series um, in- instead of just playing off of the old cast, which one of the one of my big complaints from season two of the first season was all the third years were gone and I didn't know and nor did I give a shit about all the new the new the new the new players on the team because the the first season didn't spend any time caring about anybody except for that first string. And so that 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 swap from losing like the Entire team that you knew and loved to all these new people, it seemed like a, a big set step back for me. But this season, they did a really good job of laying that groundwork with all of the, the training and everything with the new first years and the, the new third years and second years who are making the first string. They did a really, they did, they did a much better job of letting you care about everybody so that when Whatever happens with Koshien, you know they make it or they don't make it, whatever. You're not going to get side slapped like I felt I was with the second season of the first series. if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. and I think it, it really doesn't help thanks the uh, the first string in the first part of the first season. Uh it's first but um there was like seven third years so uh and then we're focusing like on their journey to uh Koshien so we're not really able to have literally anybody else uh at that point.
2: Yeah, you lost like almost the whole team when they graduated.
0: Yeah. But now we have this pretty good mixture of uh second years, third years and now first years coming in. Um so yeah. Uh, I mean, there's still like there are more obviously more deficiencies in the roster than there were when the third years were there because they seem so rock solid compared to who's there now, uh, especially at third base where they rotate these two guys around with the uh, uh, the guy that looks weird and the other guy who I don't remember what he looks like or anything about him.
3: <laughs> well, I do I, I do wonder if, uh, the creator of the manga uh, Yuji Terajima. I think this might still be his like first big manga, So I do wonder for the original third years if he really, you know, really worked on those because he needed a really good initial core team to work with. And then when he had to bring in new first years, he was like, "Oh shoot, I already, I already shot my shot. I already pitched it. Ah, uh, crap. Um, all right, let me write these guys." And I think as time has gone on, you know, he's he's gotten better at this. And so when he had to bring in a new cast of characters to be the new first years, I think that's he probably he you know figured things out. Well, that's me guessing.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean that makes sense. And yeah, it, you you already have this established. Plays yeah, you have this established group of players at this point too. So like we don't have to put these third years on a pedestal either. You can really grow them as we meet them, rather than having them seemingly fully grown from the beginning. Uh, oh, we completely forgot about the younger Yuki brother who uh seems to be able to do nothing except for hit baseball's really hard,
2: except he can't even do that in game. Yeah. <laughs> I mentioned him yeah, briefly yeah. When I was talking about i I knew there was somebody with someone's brother
3: God and he and he acts like he's such like hot stuff, and then nah he needs some work, he needs some work. he is not his older brother at all he
2: did he did yeah. not make the first string, did he?
0: um yes i believe he made the first ring is like the 20th player okay
2: but yeah no they 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 have this really good visual gag with him every time he strikes out he walks away from the the batter's box with his helmet twisted because he's swinging that
0: fucking
2: <laughs> hard but he just cannot connect with the ball
0: yeah for uh people who just want a visual and haven't seen the anime and you are listening to this for some reason, but I look up videos of Todd Frazier really swinging the ball. It's kind of like him, IRL. Uh, but this third baseman is Kanemaru. He has, like, blonde hair. He looks um, not really gangsterish, but this photo that I'm looking at kind of looks gangster And then Higasa is the other third baseman who is bald.
2: Okay. And then there's Furia, the third third baseman.
0: No, he plays left.
2: I thought they stuck him at third base during one game.
0: I think they did, but they are just experimenting. I don't think they would leave him there for any... Extending a period of time. The third base no, requires no a lot of third base requires a lot of effort and stuff, and like you don't want to injure for you at third base when you can pitch.
3: I do believe they use uh, Yui at other spots besides just catcher, though. Yeah, and that that was an interesting thing where he is having to learn that he is not the hots He's not just the hot stuff he thinks he is. In middle school where he thought he was like oh man i'm a genius i'm going to this place i'm going to lay it out i'm going to be the best catcher around and he discovers that he is not the best around and he's got to fight for this and he's now really having to wonder just how much is he willing to what to give up if he can't catch
0: mm-hmm. yeah i,
2: like, I like how sorry yeah and i like how he's leaning more towards i'll do whatever it takes to help the team kind of kind of mentality Mm-hmm. He's a good, he's a good character. I really like you.
0: Yeah, and I like the uh, the versatility that they're trying to give these players, like sticking Furia in left field and like really um, nurturing that, rather than just throwing him there because his back's really good and he happens to not be pitching that day. Uh, but yeah, also putting Ue in various places, like very Major League Baseball esque in uh, trying to get some added versatility and usage out of the players' backs when their position is taken up by someone else who is better at that particular position.
3: Again, this is like, now that's what I call baseball, the anime. <laughs> like, it is so, ah, it's so good at it.
2: Yeah. Speaking of, just because, it, like, this is like the most random segue, but this is where my brain is. I'm, re- I'm recalling that, you know, that was a big thing this whole season was everybody playing different uh Positions during the all star game, freaking it was so weird watching Miyuki play first base so that he wasn't catching Narumiya's pitches. Um, but then my brain jumped straight to oh man, I can't believe that they still have not changed that stock animation of the first base player (laughs) catching (laughs) catching that that out. Like, and they, 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 they started doing it with other teams too. Like, it's just a palette swap or what, or just like a character dropout it's the same stance the, the the runner runs over the base at the same moment every everything and it blows my mind it was one of my favorite things from the first series and they kept it around stock animation for the win
3: <laughs> it's not you know in the first the first run of this the first season it was being you know shared you know responsibilities between madhouse and production ig it was like the two titans of animation got together to make this baseball show. But for act two, it's just madhouse. So, you know, they look, they got to cut those corners where they can. And if, and if it's just somehow more enjoyable that way, yeah, man, good for us.
2: See now it's hilarious. Cause what I was going to say was with this season, they actually figured out a way to save money and have, you know, not as great animation, but not, work themselves to death to where you get those episodes that are complete garbage like there were in the first series because there were these random episodes where there was zero animation Um, I can't can't remember the number but it was like episode like 30 something of the first series where there was almost no animation it was just like stills for the whole 20 minutes Um, you, you don't get any of that in this series it's all very nice and very even looking um, it's not super stellar, like they never go above and beyond, but it never dips down into that oh no territory. So I kind of I kind of appreciate the animation more this series. So you go madhouse.
0: Yeah, that way. I mean, we joke uh, with each other about how it's kind of uh, a clip show or uh, a lot of panning shots, stills, etc. But uh, you still love it. Gotta love it. All right, can we move on to questions?
3: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Okay, hey, so only question from Izangra: Has your opinion of Furuya changed? he's asking so we could get Jarek's answer before uh before the podcast because he's not here. And Jarek says he hasn't seen the stuff yet, so no.
2: then this is why like I was really trying to harp on Jared like no we need you because we needed his Furuya input because there was so much actual stuff happening with him. Mm -hmm. And he was so passionate about his hatred of Furuya during the first series. So those two episodes that we recorded, we needed him. And I'm so, so sad. And he he never got around to even watching it so that he couldn't even answer. I'm so sad. Jared, you need to watch it because things happen with Furuya. They drew a face on him like Basil said. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Look, clearly now what we have to do is convince ink to like watch some episodes I guess and get an otaku radio about this where it'll be all five of us (laughs) and we'll just talk about Faria and that will surely make Jared hate him no matter what
0: (laughs) (laughs) we just have to sign up for their Patreon and force them to watch it through one of those tiers I I think they have one of those I don't know
2: there you go (laughs) who's going to bite the bullet which one of our listeners is gonna bite the bullet and make top <laughs> No Radio do Ace of Diamond?
0: Uh, me.
2: <laughs>
0: uh, but yeah, I think that our, our overall f- opinions of uh, of Furia have changed for the better uh, because he is more than more of a character now.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah, that that shiny new paint on the pitching machine really helps. Yep, it really does.
2: Uh, but, as Basil says, who cares about Furuya when Kawakami is right there?
3: Look at him. He is so adorable, and he tries really hard, and he's actually pretty good. He's just stuck with, you know, Saumura's having his epic shonen journeys. But Kawakami's like, right there, y'all. He could run a show himself. It'd be fine. It'd be good, actually. You he know what? After we get through Act... pretty sexy. Look, after Act 3 you know, we need more baseball, so how about we have Kawakami in his college career? It'd be great.
0: Pitch <laughs> it. Yeah, I mean, I'm very interested to see what they do when, uh, when, uh, uh, Sawamura, gosh, I forgot his name for a minute. Uh, Sawamura graduates because does this show, I mean, obviously it's going to be either it ends or you follow Sawamura College, but what I would be very interested in is does this show mean who is the ace of the diamond for Seiko? Uh, And I would absolutely watch it continue to watch it if it was just following uh sego sego the team because like i am invested not only in sour but also in this team
2: that's a really that'd be fun you know that it would never happen but that'd be yeah. really fun just stick with stick with the team and follow whoever keeps coming in uh, there you go the next ace of diamond is that new first year with the glasses who can't who can't talk to nobody he's gonna become fucking badass mm. watch quote me on it
3: <laughs> also our we we haven't really talked about too much about the coaching staff uh, of sado but i really enjoyed tessin or tessian the, the main coach
0: Kato and Kato how Kato we Kato. actually
3: had to deal with his coach's team like his the guy that he coached under you know he learned under his team that was that was really nice yeah, and that, that was if i'm not mistaken
2: that was also the coach um of Sato, who took Sato to Koshien
0: Mm-hmm. yep.
2: Previously, yeah, yeah that was pretty we- really cool. I love, I love him, and I still love that Sawamura acts like he's a yakuza with the coach. Like that's still one of my favorite bits in the whole show. Um, he's a he's a great coach. I love him. Boss, boss, boss.
0: So absurd, but um, all right, let's close out this episode. Where can you find everybody online?
3: I guess I go first since I'm ostensibly the guest, although it's feeling less and less like guest and more just like, yay, I'm on this now. Um, Which, first off, thank y'all for having me again, still. It's wonderful talking to y'all. So you can find me mostly on the Awesome Caster Podcast for everything awesome. You can find that at osmcast.com. You can also find me on Twitter at It's Basal
2: Thank you so much, Basil. It's always great talking to
0: you. You're allowed um, anytime you watch the show. Thanks. Uh, we are talking about.
2: Especially when I don't watch the show. <laughs> we are <laughs> <laughs> going to talk about. I really miss being on the Ahi no Sora podcast. I still need to start that. Uh, it's watch. good stuff. It's good stuff.
0: It is. Yes. Modern <sighs> Slam Dunk. It's not really Modern Slam Dunk, but it's good. <laughs>
2: It's no Kurokos, and I can say that without watching it.
0: It's literally no Kurokos. Right. Like, the dude got angry that they did a Kurokos thing in the anime. <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> it's, it's definitely not wizards playing basketball. Yeah.
2: Well, what's even the point? <laughs> 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 hey, oh, hey, You can find me on the Twitter technically at Gokufi. Um... You can also technically find me on YouTube at the Cups of Night channel. Um, I still plan on making videos. I'm taking a little bit of a break, trying to retool what I'm doing here a little bit. And you can also find me on Letterboxd at Gokufi. That's where I'm most uh, active because I can't stop watching movies. That's why I don't watch anime as much as I should.
0: As I make Chris. As I make all right, so you can find me on Twitter at CompassionateK. you can find this podcast on Twitter at taiku podcast. It's T-A-I-I-K-U, and you can find all of our episodes over at TaikuPodcast.com. Uh, thank you both coming on, talking about baseball right before uh, opening day, or by the time everyone listens to it, it'll be uh no, it was gonna be right before opening day. Never mind. Leave it in. <laughs> Leave it in.
2: great anticlimactic moment i just want to say that i'm proud of us that nobody mentioned michael jackson buying the elephant man's bones
0: he did yes i didn't mention it because i didn't know it
2: yes <laughs> michael jackson very famously purchased the skeleton of john merrick and had it up
0: in uh, the neverland ranch wow did he do that uh, before or after he bought the Beatles uh kind of luck
2: After, I'm sure. (laughs) You buy the Beatles catalog, all of a sudden, you got more money than you know what to do with.